0: Please stand as you're able for the reading of the word. The scripture reading today is from the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. Hear these words. Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness, And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In his image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. God said, See, I've given you every plant-yielding seed that is upon the face of the earth, And every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything has breath of life. I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw everything that he had made, and indeed, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God.
1: Thank you, Mike, for reading our lesson and how good it is. To be back in the routine and to see each of you in worship today. Uh, we're so looking forward to this afternoon. I hope you're making plans. And Jeff, I think you've got a great idea uh, about the shuffling preacher. I think that's a great idea. Bring extra. Sherry doesn't eat much, but I do. And uh, we look forward to that. We're going to have a great time tonight, and it's an annual a part of our experience here. We look forward to the fellowship, and it looks like it's going to be a, a good night for us this evening. Uh, we are beginning a new series, as you can see, as you entered into worship today from your bulletin, on the book of Genesis. Genesis. The word Genesis in Hebrew, Bereshit, literally means beginnings or origins. The book of Genesis for the Hebrew people functions as the prologue to the Torah, the first five books of the Hebrew Scriptures. It is composed of two sections that we're going to look at in five weeks each. The first section, chapters 1 through 11, has to do with the primeval history, the early beginnings of all creation. And the second section, which stretches from chapter 12 through 50, has to do with the ancestral narratives of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Esau, Joseph, the 12 sons of Israel, and so on and so forth. I need to say from the beginning that Genesis is not a science book. It is a confession of faith. It is a proclamation, it is a doxology, if you will, that unveils, discloses, reveals the purpose of God, not just for Israel, not just for an ethnic clan, but for all the world, for all of creation. I have found myself, especially during the last 12 months, being drawn back to this book Particularly because of the context I think we're living in. We're living in one of the most perplexing, confusing, chaotic ages in history in which we are struggling to find a sense of of meaning, to find a sense of purpose. And and sometimes, because of our fallen nature, we look in all the wrong places to find it. I've discovered that people, as a pastor, I've discovered that, that we can exist with unfulfilled Wants and unmet needs. But we cannot live abundantly. We cannot live fruitfully without purpose. I don't know who said it. I think it's attributed to Friedrich Nietzsche. That's interesting because he was not a believer, who said, he who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. Boy, I love that. She who has a why to live for can, can bear, endure almost anyhow. Some of you know the name Simon Sinek, don't you, who is an author and sort of a cultural guru, a consultant. He's written a book called Start With Why. This is a must-read for organizations, for business folks. Simon says in the book that every leader, every company, organization – knows the what of their business. In other words, they can describe their product, their industry, and their competitors. They know the what. Some companies, Simon says, also know how they do what they do. In other words, our unique distinctions, differentiations, and values. But, says Simon, very few organizations know or can articulate their why of existence, their purpose, their belief, their cause. And the why is our very reason for being. Now, occasionally, organizations or businesses will, will try to put their why in a tagline. See if you know some of these businesses. Here's one, to inspire and nurture the human spirit, one person, one cup, and one neighborhood at a time. Anybody know who that is? Starbucks. To preach the gospel of Christ and to meet human needs in his name without discrimination. That's the Salvation Army. We help people save money so that they can live better. Walmart. <laughs> you got that one, Ashley. Here's one. To make people happy. Disney. How about this one? To make disciples of all nations, for Christ's sake, for the transformation of the world. That's the why. People don't buy what we do, they buy buy why we do it. It's about purpose, and I believe that Genesis, the Book of Beginnings, Bereshith, starts with why. Why are we here? What is my purpose? What's my reason for being? Why life? Why suffering? Why sin? Why death? Why grace? These are the existential questions that, frankly, keep us awake at night, that wake us up in the midnight hours. And these are the questions that triggered the writing of Genesis. Now, most scholars, Bible scholars believe, and I I believe also, that Genesis was written somewhere about the 6th century B.C. during the most taxing time in the history of Israel, during the exile. When Jerusalem, the holy city, had been ransacked, the chosen ones had been banned, deported, made to live as refugees on a foreign turf. Of course, we know that the content of Genesis predates the sixth century BC, it goes back hundreds upon hundreds of years to oral tradition where parents and grandparents would tell the origin stories, ancestral and primeval oral tradition stories to their grandchildren. But when life as they knew it is at risk, you have to write these things down. When your identity is threatened, when your history and your heritage is at risk, these old questions begin to resurface. You can't help it. And we begin to retrace our origins, our beginnings again, and we record them lest they be forgotten by future generations. Because if you forget your why, then your what and your how are irrelevant. He who has a why to live for can endure anyhow. I think this is part of the reason that, that our trip to Wesley's England was so meaningful. It was so important, and I think so timely, really. As we're contemplating uh, the future of our church and, and dom- uh, denomination, it was so important to go back to Epworth. We went back to the little rectory where. John Wesley, as a five-year-old boy, was rescued from the flames. His mother would always say of him, he was a brand plucked from the burning. And there in Epworth, we experienced again the providence of God. Then we went to Oxford University. The university is an umbrella that houses 44 different colleges. And there we saw where Mr. Wesley was educated and we were reminded of the vital mix of, of faith and knowledge. Not one or the other, but faith and knowledge. Then we went to London, to Aldersgate, where his heart was warmed at the age of 35, where he had that conversion experience, and we were reminded of anew of the necessity of spiritual renewal and experience with Christ in our lives. Then we went to the coast, to Bristol, to the New Room, to the mothership of Methodism, where Wesley, under George Whitefield's guidance, did his open air preaching to the poor. And there we were reminded of the necessity of innovation in the church. And finally, we finished at Wesley's Chapel, City Road in London, where we were reminded of the necessity of preserving a tradition and adapting a methodology. The whole time I was thinking to myself, this is a universal truth, that before you can ever go forward in life, you need to go back and rediscover the why of our start in the first place. And so today, as a congregation, we begin these next two months by going back to Genesis. Genesis begins in chapter one, we read a section of the creation story. Genesis actually begins with music. It begins with a song. There are some truths that are so transcendent, that are so beyond us, and since none of us were actually there at the dawn of creation, there are some truths that are so beyond us that you have to have poetry to understand it. And creation begins in Genesis one with a song. It's been said that music is the language of the soul. Creation begins as an act, listen, of speech, divine speech. Psalm 8 is a creation song. Listen to what the psalmist says. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made and all their hosts by the breath of his mouth. If you read the creation poem, it begins with with God saying, let there be... And it happens. It's interesting. Let there, it's not the language of coercion. It's the language of invitation. Now you could stop right there and preach a sermon about the importance of language, couldn't you, in our culture? You remember that old adage we used to say as kids, sticks and stones? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but what? Words will never hurt me? That's a lie. Broken bones don't take nearly as long to heal as a wounded soul from a disparaging word. We're reminded from the dawn of creation that with a word we can build up or we can tear down. With a word, with speech, we can create or destroy. We can lift someone up or put them down. Creation is an act of speech out of which light comes from darkness and order comes out of chaos. I love in chapter 1 that at the conclusion of each day, and these are not, of course, 24-hour days. These are eras or epochs. At At the conclusion of each phase of creation, what does God do? God affirms the work of His hands. In fact, the first affirmation of faith in the Bible is not the Apostles' Creed. It's three words. It is good. Life is good. A recurring phrase every day after creation, every day admiring, affirming the work of God's hands. What that means to me is that the native language of creation is praise. Oh, my Lord, it seems to me that in the 21st century, we'd become more fluent in cursing than in blessing. I confess, I'm better sometimes at blessing out than blessing in. Lily Tomlin, the comedian, once said, man invented language because of our deep need to complain. And I think it's true. We're more eloquent in our criticisms we are in our affirmation. I tell you, that's why during our trip, the extension, I went to Ireland to the Blarney Castle just to kiss that stone. I kissed the Blarney stone, almost fell through the railing, (laughs) but I kissed the Blarney stone because they told me that if you will kiss that rock, Mike, that you will become more eloquent. It hasn't worked for me. Now Lydia Kingsborough came in today. She also kissed the stone. She's been reciting Shakespeare ever since. I mean, it worked for her. (laughs) It, It works for some people. But it occurs to me when I read this story about creation coming from speech that it isn't eloquence that we need. It's affirmation. That's what the world needs. That's the native tongue of the order, of the Creator. That's why what we do in worship, this is, this is not luxury, this, this is standard, this is absolutely crucial because worship is praise. We are created by the Creator to worship God and to give thanks. That's why when you look at the order of worship in the traditional order of worship, what do we start with? Call to worship. Him of what? Praise. Affirmation of faith. Glory be to the Father, doxology, that's praise, proclamation of good news, the benediction, it means blessing. That's our native language. Dr. David Bratton, a great doctor, great friend, great member of this church. We did his funeral about two weeks ago. He he grew up Presbyterian. He was a Presbyterian before he met Allison, and was instructed in the way of the Lord more perfectly. He became a Methodist at that point. <laughs> but he always reminded us of something in our Bible study. Bobby always reminded us of what's called the Westminster Confession. That's Presbyterian. The shorter catechism begins with the question, what is the chief purpose of humanity? And the answer, to glorify God and to enjoy God forever." That's your why. That's our why. And the scripture that Mike read for us this morning is about the sixth day. I want to talk about that briefly. It's interesting to me that God reserves God's highest affirmation in that creation poem for day six, that it was actually after He made the heavens and the earth, the sun and the moon, the hills and the valleys, flowers and trees, that God says to God's self, now let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness. And I want to pause it for a second because I think there's been a typographical error in the pronoun. It seems to me that maybe the scribe has made an error. It seems to me it should say Let me make humankind in my image according to my likeness. But that isn't what it says. The pronoun is plural. And so, what does that mean? It's not a mistake, by the way. Some say it's the plurality of majesty. What's that mean? It's like when a judge or a king who is so powerful and so majestic speaks for himself. He doesn't say I. He says we because it's the plurality of power. He's speaking for the state or he's speaking for the people, maybe. Or others say it's similar to the Job story that when Job is speaking us and we, he's speaking to the heavenly council. Did you know that there was a heavenly charge conference according to the book of Job? Speaking to the angels, we, maybe. There are others, however, who see a link here in this pronoun to the Trinity, So what's happening, some say, is that the Father is having a little sidebar with Jesus, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, it makes sense to me. The Trinity is a clue that God in God's infinite nature is relational. And so a part of God's image in us is in our need and desire to live in community. This is not an I proposition, this is a we thing. Like God, we by nature are social creatures, moral creatures made in the image, and when we are disconnected, we become inhumane. To be human means to be relational like God. By the way, you see this in chapter two of Genesis where it says to us that there is one thing in creation that is not good. You know what that is? For us to live in isolation. For humankind to live in seclusion. John Don was right. No man is an island. No woman is an island. We need each other. It turns out that you are actually your brother's keeper, that I am my sister's keeper, And so in the context of community, that is where we best reflect the why of God. But back to the point. God reserves God's greatest affirmation for day six because the Genesis writer says that after creating humankind in his likeness, he doesn't do as he did on the first five days. He doesn't simply say it is good, What does God say? It is very good. It's like humanity is the crown of creation. It is very good, although please don't get the big head at this point, because remember in chapter one, verse 24 that we didn't read, that's a part of the sixth day. Did you know that God also created cows on the sixth day? Creeping things. I don't have to tell you there's a fine line between human creatures and creepers, so don't get the big head. There are some who actually say that man didn't fare so well after creation because God made us on the last day of the week when he was tired and worn out. But the greatest affirmation is for those who are made in his likeness. Listen again to the psalmist. What is man? that thou art mindful of him, the Son of Man, that thou dost visit him. Thou hast made him, listen, a little lower than the angels and crowned him, her, with glory and honor. Don't look now, but that is a very high view of humanity. I want to tell you something that bothers me. It's a pet peeve. I've noticed that sometimes we equate the word human with mistake. I hear it in conversation like when the shortstop drops the ball, what do we say? Well, he's only human. When the soprano misses the high note, well, she's only human. When Pecorine, the goalie for the Pritz, misses the puck, well, he's only human. But what was he when he blocked the shot? And won the match. What was the soprano when she hit the note? What was the shortstop when he dove and caught the ball? Human? I've heard it said to err is human, Alexander Pope. To err is human, to forgive is divine, and I suppose, but to be human is more than air. Sometimes we make it out to be so cheap so disposable, so throwaway, so substandard. I want to tell you, when Sherry and I experienced the birth of our children, we absolutely fell in love with humanity. There is not a Sunday that goes by when there's not a baptism over here at this font that we as a congregation don't again and again fall in love with humanity. To err is human But we're more than that. If you want to mess with somebody's mind this week, the next time somebody compliments you for doing something good, say, Well, I'm human. That'll mess them up. Hey, it was a great Sunday school lesson this morning, really meant a lot to me. Well, I'm human. Really appreciated your message this morning. Well, after all, I'm human. It was beautiful music. James, Bryson, Sunshine. Well, you're human. Because after all, it wasn't after God made caterpillars and koala bears that He said, This is my best. It was when He scooped up a handful of Tennessee dirt and He breathed His spirit and He said, This is my masterpiece. I have outdone myself today. And he made you. Now, I know chapter 3 is coming. (laughs) We know about the garden scene, our dirty little secret, our problem of sin. It is real. It is destructive. It is lethal. We'll talk about it next week. You can't get away from the fall But that's not all that there is. That's not the last word, and that's not the first word of your humanity. I'm here to tell you this morning, you are not a mistake. You are not an accident. You are not an oops. You're a chip off the old block. And the world is not made any better when we pretend otherwise. It is awesome. Very good. Let me finish with this. I mentioned our children. A minute ago, two weeks ago, early on Monday morning, we got a call from Fire and Rescue in North Georgia in the mountains. Our daughter, Haley, and her boyfriend had gone on a little rafting trip, the two of them, down the Etowah River in a very remote area of North Georgia, They went out on a Sunday afternoon, and we had not heard back from them, and the chief called on Monday morning. He said they made a 911 call. They were on the river at 10 o'clock last night in a cove. They couldn't find their way out, and then their phones lost power. We don't know where they are. We got in the car immediately and drove towards Dawsonville, Atlanta. I don't remember a thing about the drive. I I couldn't see anything. I was on automatic pilot. I couldn't see anything, but my own fears and every breath was a prayer for us. Just before we arrived, the chief called and gave us the best news we'd ever heard, found. We found them, and they're all right. We were relieved. When we got there, all we could do was just hold her, stay with her. And thank Zach, her boyfriend, for caring for her. We couldn't leave. In fact, yesterday, she was 25 years old. I call her almost every day just to see if she's alive. Just checking. When we got home the next day, I I didn't remember any of this. We had packed a bag, and, and there it sat, and I thought, I don't know. I don't even know what we packed. And I looked in the bag. The only thing we took were two pairs of hiking shoes and about 10 pair of socks. And I realized what that meant. What that meant was we weren't coming home until she was found. Those shoes on our feet and those socks in the bag were a testimony that that girl, that child, is our why. It's in our DNA. It's just the way we're made. We're we're only human. (laughs) A mother and daddy who, by God's grace, have the capacity to co-create a child, to birth her, to nurture her, to love her, to raise her. We weren't coming home without her. And it occurred to me, that's how it is with God and us. Because don't you know, you... Are God's why? You? We call Genesis Torah, I think it's gospel. (laughs) It's the gospel of a lovesick God who made us, redeemed us, sustains us, and will not stop until his purpose is accomplished in us, until we are found in grace and mercy in his presence because we are the why of God and it is only in him that we understand purpose. The chief end of humankind is to praise God and enjoy him forever. May it be so. Even on this side, of eternity. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.